Welcome back to Are Your Parents Proud of You? I am your host, Matthew Schufreiter, and I am joined by... Oh, that's my cue. Yep. I'm, I'm Griffin McCorkle. I do some things around here. You do some things, you throw some shit around, you make mm, stuff happen. Okay. Not, not literal shit, but... Oh, okay. Well, we're in two different states, so you can't actually throw it to me. Yeah. It's a shame, really. Yeah. Um, Matt, why don't you tell everybody who our, our guest is today? Griffin, we have a really exciting guest. We have Maui Jones, the artistic director of Echo Theater Collective. He is an actor. He's a director. He's a writer. He's an activist. Uh, we talk, I talked to him about swag, like literal swag. His, nice. Also his former theater company. Uh, we talk about his mom. We talk about superheroes uh, and the West Wing. And, nice. Yeah, and we read that he reads this touching letter he wrote to his child. It's a really beautiful episode, and I hope you all enjoy. So we record this conversation on October twelfth. Here is my conversation with Maui Jones. Let's go. Hey Maui. Hey, what's up? How you doing, man? Good. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited. I'm excited too. So fun fact, we actually never had a one-on-one conversation, but we've acted together in several projects this past summer with the Zooming the Movies project. That's, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Can you remember all the ones we've done? I think we, we only have done two. Well, we just did Vice, yeah. um, like a day or two before recording this. Um, what was the other one that we did? Was it... Where, did you do Forrest Gump? Yes, I did do for I played young Forrest Gump. You played young Forrest on that one, so yeah. we did that one. Um, did, you didn't. You weren't in the Avengers one, were you? No, I didn't do that one. Okay. Did you do um, Tombstone? I did not do Tombstone. I was sad that I was that I didn't get to do Tombstone because actually. I don't know if he remembers it, but Tombstone was my idea. Uh, I, I suggested it like months ago, like right when I first started doing those with him. Well, let me tell you, I didn't want to do it because I'd never seen it before. And like the night before, he's like, hey, I have a role. I need someone to do it. Do you want to do it? I'm like, fine, I'll do Tombstone. What um, what role did you do? I, I don't even remember. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's, that's a you know the movie. That is a great movie. It's one of my favorite uh, westerns of all time. I guess I have something to watch now. You should totally watch it. Val Kilmer's performance in that he plays Doc Holliday is absolutely incredible, and he has all the best lines as well. It's it's so so freaking good. Yeah, I I mean, for you, let's let's just get right into like this pandemic life. How is it for you, and how are you finding ways to stay creative? Um, it's, it's been interesting. Um, so a few years ago, I started a, a theater company and, uh, this year was going to be our busiest year yet. We had four productions we were planning on doing this year. Previously, we'd only done one a year and we were doing four plays this year. Um, I was actually in the middle of directing uh, a play called Exit Strategy by Ike Holter that was about um, the CPS and its failing systems. Very powerful play. And yeah, we had to cancel our, all of our productions. We were, we had that. We were going to do um, 
this one that I saw uh, Mudlark uh, commissioned this awesome play called the ARC Trials. Mm. It's a young adult play. And one of my actors from a play that I, I directed called Blues for Mr. Charlie was in it. And I went, I went to go support him. And I see this play. And I'm like, this is so cool. Like, I felt like I was watching a TV show, you know? So like when it, the, the first act leaves on this cliffhanger and so I'm like, what's happening next? So I'm like freaking out. And then I go in and I'm like hoping that like, there's like a disembodied voice that goes previously on the ARC trials, you know? So, <laughs> um, and like, I was like, I have to do this play. It's, it's so powerful. And he, you know prioritizes youth voices and especially youth of color i was so excited for it and so that really sucked but since the pandemic stopped all of that we started doing like a, a talk show that we did for a while we've done virtual plays we did we've done a few of those um i do this um monthly art experiment where i take a bunch of artists who've never met each other i give them a topic and don't let them communicate with each other beforehand and then the, the day of they just start creating collaboratively over zoom so you might have uh, someone making an impromptu song and then someone dancing to that impromptu song and someone painting the entire experience at the same time and so we've found some pretty interesting ways to be creative uh through the pandemic i would say well, plus you know, i'll do all the virtual readings that I, you know, which is how i met you yeah um, is it though, I'm curious, like, like we're talking about these virtual readings as an actor, it's very hard for me to stay in it or have a same energy just because I'm in the room by myself and I'm not physically in the room with 10, 15, how many actors, um, for a company, like even a community, a community theater company, what's that energy level like right now? Um, it, so it, it's interesting uh, for me. So, and I should preface this by saying I'm not trained. I didn't go to school for acting. I didn't go to school for directing. It's just something I've always had a passion for. And as I have self-taught myself, the, the most important thing for me is emotional truth, right? How do I connect to the material? How do I get my actors to connect to the material? I'll give you an example. We did um, we did this bake off where um, everybody came up with all of these ingredients. These words or phrases were the ingredients, and every um, every uh, actor had to come up with a piece that utilized these ingredients. And one of the actors wrote this amazing uh, short, like five minute play, and it's a conversation between this guy and his best friend who died. And, and the guy's it, it, like his lowest point, probably about to kill himself. And like the ghost of his friend comes and talks with him. Uh, now the, the thing that made it more powerful, because uh, he asked me if I would play the role of the guy who was based off of himself. And the, the, the ghost he was speaking to was a mutual friend of ours who, who we lost. Uh, she uh, overdosed. And the actress that was performing with me, she didn't know any of, uh, of, of these people. She wasn't connected to it at all. But 
her and I are really good friends. And so as we were prepping for it, you know, to imprint that, like, imagine like our relationship, imagine if like, you left me prematurely, we're very, very close. And you see me in agony, and you know that, you know, it's partially, you know, I don't want to put the blame of the character's problems on on the person that, that passed, but the the weight and the trauma of that exacerbates pre-existing trauma. And we owe it to those characters to portray that truthfully. So for me, it's, it's like, I don't care if we're over Zoom, right? Let's figure out, let's figure out how to make that real because we owe it to the characters to portray it in a in a in a realistic way and so that's kind of how i've been approaching virtual like acting virtually over zoom you know i you know read the material connect to the material try and get as off book as possible even if i'm doing a reading you know try to read it as naturally as possible um i will say that my superpower uh in terms of acting is cold reading I'm really good at reading something like I've read it a hundred times before. Um, so that's the other thing I would say is the more prepared you are, read through the material. If you're doing a virtual reading, folks that are listening to this, if you're doing a virtual reading, read through your script before you do it. Know what's coming up. Know, know your lines. That is acting 101. You should always be familiar with the material. Even if someone asks you the day of to do something, make sure that you have done your prep work. I want to circle back to you as a child. So you grew up in California. Um, what were you like as a child? Um, so, yeah, so I actually grew up between Chicago and California. I was born in California. Um, and then we moved to Chicago and we went kind of back and forth um, between Chicago and California. Um, as a child, I was extremely shy. Uh, I did not come out of my shell until my junior year of high school. I was scared of everything. I was bullied a lot. Um, and so, yeah, I lost myself in, in movies and television shows as a kid. So like that, those were my friends, you know, and I had a pretty like rough family life. My, my parents split up when I was six. Uh, and after that, we bounced around a lot and life got pretty hard from like six on, I'd say like six until a few years ago, life was pretty tough, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, I was always obsessed with stories. I liked coming up with stories. I liked, um, pretending I was in stories. I in, created an entire alter ego for myself based on David Hasselhoff's character in Night Rider. So, so um, was, in fact, my, was he one of the, what I was going to ask you: What TV shows and movie characters uh, did you first look up to? Was is it was it Knight Rider? Knight Rider was one of the first. So, um, he, so Knight, Michael Knight, who was the guy who drove the you know kit, um, which was the car from Knight Rider. Um, I was obsessed with him. In fact, my first uh, piece of music I ever owned was a vinyl of David Hasselhoff because it had a picture of him with Kit. It was like a little. Um, what do you call the smaller records? Are those 45s? Oh, like uh, yeah. Right? So yeah. I had a 45 of David Hasselhoff was the first album that I as a, ever owned. That was probably like 
eight <laughs> at the time. Um, uh, other characters I looked up to, um, Michelangelo was everything I wanted to be. He was so he was like the outgoing party dude. You know, I wanted to be that. Um, uh, Superman. I'm a big Superman junkie. Um, yeah, I so I've, I've always been a fan of like the like the alpha hero type you know like if you look at like lost right lost has like a full collection of like every character archetype Mm -hmm. and jack shepherd was my guy man you know he's the hero man he has to like run around and save everybody you know that's my that's my kind of hero (laughs) i can see an iron man uh helmet right above you yes yeah tony is a little broken but i i do love tony He's, yeah, he's a, he's he's more than broken in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I actually I often say that the the biggest villain in the MCU to date has been Tony Stark. I mean, if you look at most every appearance of Tony Stark, he's the per- person that's actually caused what's happening. You know, from Iron Man to um, Iron Man three you know his callousness towards people um age of ultron you know like repeatedly over and over and over again tony's uh, hubris is kind of what destroys everything that's why like that whole infinity saga you know from iron man to endgame is one huge arc for tony to actually become a selfless person you know like like cap like cap that was kind of always in cap from the beginning whereas like tony had to learn that in a very very hard way and eventually realize that he had to give give himself like you know to let everybody else live i don't know that tony in previous movies could have gotten to that point and i think that that's one of the most beautiful like character arcs you could ever see in a movie speaking of characters and um was there anyone in your personal, in your real life that meant to you, um, that really inspired you when you were bullied, shy, and all that? Yeah, uh, I had a cousin, uh, he's passed away, um, two cousins actually, and both of them have actually passed away. Um, my mother's cousin, uh, Maurice, was always just a, a kind person who was in my corner he he was infinitely patient um when my parents felt that my father wasn't around very much and he would come and take me to fly a kite things like that uh and then my cousin mars who was a couple years older than me he's kind of like the oldest of like the cousins that were born at the same time of my father and his siblings and so we all hung out a lot together he was kind of like, you know, he was the oldest of us. So he was kind of like the ringleader. We all emulated him. And, and he was always in my corner. He was always really kind to me when I was getting picked on and things like that. Uh, those were two big, like real life inspirations in terms of like dealing with that kind of trauma. Um, fiction, uh, not, well, yeah, I guess sort of fictional characters or at least people on TV um they weren't fictional they were themselves um mr rogers uh lavar burton and bob ross uh, that that's kind of like the the foundation 
for the masculinity that I built throughout my life. Mm-hmm. And then you talked about your parents. What were, I know you spoke a little about your father. You didn't see him around a lot. How would you define those relationships with one of them? I know there's a TED Talk video and you had your mom and you were telling the story about your mom. Um, how would you even describe those relationships? Yeah, so my with my dad, it was always a relationship of longing, uh, wanting to spend time with him. Uh, I remember so many different times where he'd be like, oh yeah, I'm coming by to pick you up. We're going to spend the day together. And I'd be waiting at the window with my little backpack and the sun would be getting, you know, high in the sky and like, oh yeah, dad's coming over and the sun's getting lower and lower and lower. And he never shows up. Uh, that was tough. And and then now as an adult, like we have a good relationship now we're, you know, but it, it's kind of more like friends than a father son relationship sometimes. Um, and he hasn't, he has another family now, right? Yeah. He's remarried and he has three kids. Like I'm 39 and I have a four-year-old sister, yeah. you know? So I, and, and, and now he's like, he lives in Plainfield, has a nice house stable you know wife kids you know stable you know nuclear family unit and as happy as i am that he's finally like settled down and found himself there's a part of me that's just like man like i really wish i could have had that yeah you know that that that's something i had to kind of come to a realization of so that i could let go of that you know i had to realize like here's something that i've been holding on to is a resentment of that and i have to be able to name it so that i can work past it so that was my father. Uh, my mother, when my mom and dad split up, she kind of went to a dark place. And my mom is an addict in every sense of the word. So for a long time, the addiction was work. She was just always working. Um, and her other addiction was men. Uh, she defined herself by the men that she was with. And eventually she ended up with the wrong guy and uh, and was introduced to drugs. Uh, crack cocaine was her drug of choice. And when she became addicted to that horrible, horrible drug, then she was just completely gone. And we were really close. Like when I was a little kid, like my mom was everything. We baked, we baked together. My love of theater comes from her. Uh, her favorite uh, uh, movie to watch when I was a kid was The King and I with the old Brenner and uh, Deborah Kerr, I believe. And we would watch it all the time. You know, a lot of the, the, the foundation of me kind of come from her. Right. And uh, in my talk, I, you know, referred to myself as like as an echo of what's come before. Uh, so yeah when she succumbed to that and she was gone that was really hard right so as a result of that between the abandonment in my early years uh, by my father and the abandonment in my teen years by this point uh, with my mother that equaled a lot of abandonment issues a lot of codependency issues um, 
I do not do well when friends leave uh, or if like friendships kind of naturally drift apart. I obsess over it. Um, or if friends like move away, like I get super depressed about it. Like I do not like people leaving my life. No, uh, to this day, it's something that I struggle with because of that. Do you have any siblings? Yes, I'm the oldest now of eight siblings. So, geez, well, yeah. Geez. Was that My, come from your father's new uh, wife? Yeah. So originally there was four of us. Um, Myself, my brother Jamal, my sister Tasha, my sister Evie. Those were my, you know, my mom's first four kids. Uh, we have different fathers. Uh, so for my my brother is as my is my father's son as well, and then Tasha and Evie have different fathers. But we were all kind of close. To, I'm six years old, older than the next oldest, which is my brother, and then the three of them are pretty close in age together. So, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So then there's that. Then and then in, when I was in high school with the guy that my mom they got my mom into the drug scene. She had a kid. And so that's Alexa. Um, and then my father, when he remarried, he had three kids, uh, Asantoa, uh, Timothy Jr. And uh, the baby uh, is Avery and she's super spoiled. So. <laughs> so when you were, did you have to sort of be a caretaker for your siblings when your mom was going through all that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, that kind of led to the deterioration of my of my uh, education career, right? That's why I ended up uh, not completing high school and getting my GED was because of that, um, which I wouldn't change um, a thing about it. You know, I would make that decision a hundred times over. But yeah, definitely, I had to grow up really fast uh, and defer my dreams because of that so what did you have what were the dreams like did you have a goal what did you want to do in high school or be i wanted to be an actor and a director mm. yeah so that's that was that was kind of always my dream was to was to write uh and direct and act and in, in stories be it on stage or on television or film you know i've always had a deep deep love for storytelling in all of its forms so and did you ever tell your parents did your parents know that you wanted to do something in the arts and how do you think they felt about it uh i don't know if my dad knew um i think my mom knew but there just was never any time right i had to help take care of the, even before my mom you know ran away there wasn't really time for those extracurriculars and uh, we moved in with a family when I was in high school, but I found a hard time getting into the theater scene. I had to, I, had, I ended up having to settle for props because, you know, um, no one was really willing to take a chance on me. And I went to high school at Oak Park River Forest uh, High School, and they have a pretty robust theater program. And all these kids kind of come up through the grade school and middle school, you know, they're doing theater for years. There's a, a click that, that's already there and I didn't even try until like my junior year when I came when I came out of my shell so you know I, there was no way I was getting on on that stage at that point you know uh so I had to settle for props you know hmm. uh, at that time and then I didn't rediscover theater until my 30s so 
Well, I'm curious because, you know, we've had act- actors on this show mm-hmm. and they always said I was a shy child or something like that. And it wasn't until theater that they performed on stage that they let loose. But then for you, for props, was there a sense of jealousy when you saw other actors on stage? Did you want to be like them? I did. I did. I desperately wanted to be on the stage. In fact, the guy that wrote that story that I talked about earlier that I did, he was in that theater click. Mm. Um, He was, it is to this day, an absolutely incredible performer. And I was like, man, I want to be like him. And now I've gotten to direct him and I've gotten to perform his work, you know? So that, that it's, it's a pretty, that was a pretty big like moment for me. I even told him that like, you know, I idolized you in high school. Like I wanted to be you in high school. And so the opportunity to get to work with you is pretty cool. Did you ever say like, Oh, have the tables have turned like that first day of rehearsal or something? (laughs) No, 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 nothing like that. But, um, but just deeply gratified that Mm -hmm. I have that opportunity to work with him. I asked that because in eighth, yeah, yeah, it was eighth grade. I was, I was, I did my first show was Alice in Wonderland. And I was Fish Footman One. Do you know who the Fish Footman One is? I do not. <laughs> Neither did I, and I still don't. Uh, <laughs> um, and but there was another Matthew in that show, and he was loved by everyone. Um, and I and I was so jealous. I, I was despising him. Cut to four years later in high school, we did a little shop of horrors, and he was Seymour. And I was the dentist and I get to antagonize him. And I felt so evil. Um, <laughs> and the director was like, Matt, you can tone it down a little bit whenever you're with Matthew. Like, oh yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. I'll, I'll tone it down and completely ignore the direction and just go even further. Um, and I, that's where I just went, Oh, have the tables have turned there, Matthew. Um, he doesn't even do theater anymore. He does engineering, but yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, man. It's, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, you know, I, my favorite, my favorite part of theater is just being in a room full of artists right. and just like exploring that, like, that would be such a fun scene to do. I've always wanted to do a little shop of horrors um, and just kind of cut loose. I've always wanted, I always wanted to be Audrey too. Uh, yeah, I, I was, it would just be so, so much fun, you know. <laughs> when we did it we had um our rg2 sit in a lawn chair with a mic and he had drinks i think he bought himself a meal right before the show and he <laughs> had it with them because he didn't speak until the end of act one so he had 20 30 minutes just to eat drink do whatever the hell he wanted mm-hmm. um, so i'm watching him by during rehearsals just i think he even took a nap during like a tech night because his stuff took two hours. And so he took a nap in his little lawn chair. I was like, what the fuck? I had, <laughs> I was really jealous of this kid. Yeah. Um, but love that show. Um, so I want to go back now to you discover theater in your thirties. Um, do you remember that show or where were guys you? and dolls? Guys, and, guys dolls. and dolls. Okay. Yeah. And I should preface like, so the, I, I had a weird like circuit to eventually doing theater. So like I kind of came out of my shell my, my junior year 
of high school but it was kind of too late to get like get my foot in the door in the theater scene and then I went into the workforce um and my first step to getting on stage was actually uh through karaoke so I always wanted to do theater um I have a deep love of musical theater but I never knew how to sing and when I was in my twenties, my friend uh, Joy was really into karaoke, and she's like, "Oh, you gotta do karaoke." I'm like, "I can't go in front of a group of crowd of people and sing. You must be out of your mind." And eventually, she convinced me to do it. I sang a Beatles song. I think I did like one of like the classic like early Beatles songs, like "Help." I think is what it was. Okay. Um. And I, I was shaking like a leaf. I sounded terrible. I didn't know how to sing, didn't know how to hold a note. Um, and then like a year or two later, I tried it again. My friend Eric, uh, who comes from like a theater family, uh, they got me to go do karaoke. And this time I had just, just like just enough alcohol in me to like, you know, just like let loose. And I had a good time. And then I got obsessed with it. I started going every week. Um and I started listening to the songs and then trying to mimic them and figure out the, you know, intonations and whatnot and the melodies and, uh, and taught myself that. And then I'd start teaching myself, okay, I want to do duets and figure out harmonies. And so I, you know, I just kind of self-taught myself, just, I have a decent ear uh, for that kind of thing. Um, so I was doing karaoke and um one of my patrons, as I was running a karaoke show at this point now, and one of my patrons had a a small little theater company, and he was like, "Hey, man, you're a good singer. You should you should do theater." Now I'm also working disaster restoration. I'm doing a, a service master, which is a very time intensive job. So I'm like, I don't really have the time for rehearsals. He's like, Oh, it's okay. Like, we'll give you a small part. You just, it'll just be like ensemble. Won't have too many rehearsals. I'm like, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's fuck it. You know, this is something I always wanted to do. Let's do it. And then he gives me Harry, the horse in guys and dolls, which is outside of the main characters, probably the heaviest speaking role. I was pretty annoyed. I was, you know, <laughs> Um, and so I had to do it. And also it was a pretty dysfunctional production. It was not, you know, it, it, you know, it was a very, very small community theater, you know, in a church type of thing. And, uh, but I did it and I got to get on stage and I got to act. I still have the, the suit in my closet there. Um, and I was like, I did it. I, I can do it. I, you know, it, it wasn't great, but it's done. And I had a really good time and I met a lot of cool people. And then I thought to myself, not only can I do it, like, I think I could facilitate something like this. Hmm. Wouldn't it be cool to actually do it and do it like right and do it about some stories that matter. And so that's, you know, so I went straight from doing a, a show to starting a theater company it was my first theater company that I started it was called swag um and that led to me directing a few things and I got my feet wet on on that end um so the first thing I did I wrote and directed a Broadway review uh called Legends of Broadway mm -hmm. 
and it was about the muse of song and dance, Melpomene. Uh, and he was giving a class on Broadway. And then we had a kid, you know, in the audience who was a plant. He was actually uh, the, the other main character in this show. And so Melpomene goes in like he's like about to give this um, lecture on Broadway. And the kid's just like, boo! <laughs> you know, he's like, Broadway sucks. And, you know, like, talk about some hip hop. Let me hear some Jay-Z. And like, I wrote, I wrote this too. Yeah. Uh, with a couple people. And, um, and then he brings the kid on stage and he takes them on this journey throughout theater. And so as they get to each like lesson, each song that he's talking about, then performers would come out and do the song. And so we started from the beginning. We were, I think we, we leave off at rent and then talk about like the new era of theater. And then um, the kid, by the end of this, like the kid finally understands why theater is so important. And then he starts thinking about like, man, imagine if we could like integrate like hip hop into it and this and that and the other. And then, and then you see Mel uh, with a bindle and he's just like, all right, well, I got to go. He's like, where are you going? He's just like, well, you're the new muse kid. And like, it's, now it's, it's your turn. And it's, it's, a, and it's a, it's a young man of color. It's like, it's your turn. It's your turn to inspire the next generation of musical theater artists. And, and then because the kid's been talking about hip hop the entire time. He's now he's like, Oh, how do I integrate hip hop and theater? And then you hear the opening few notes of Hamilton mm. and he, and he assumes the pose like, you know, so like, here's the next phase of theater. It was, it was, it was super cheesy and I loved it. It was really good though. I was really proud of that show. <laughs> yeah. That was the first thing. That was the first, that was the first thing I, I, I wrote, I co-wrote it with uh, two wonderful people, my friend, Eric, who I mentioned earlier and my friend Ray, um, who is a wonderful um, uh, writer and stage manager. So That's awesome. Yeah. Um, what was the reaction like when that show first premiered? Um, people really dug it. People really were into it. Um, and uh, this one lady saw a flyer and missed it, uh, but then reached out to me. And uh, we had a meeting and then we decided to try and do this um, sing-along because Hamilton was like, just popping right and i was like yeah, yeah well, let's do a sing-along and so we did the sing-along and it and it like went viral like playbill.com like as opposed to like first hamilton sing-along in illinois is, is about to happen and we had like hundreds of people show up like we overflowed we had to open up the place where we did it in berwin the out of space they have these big garage doors on the side of of the venue and to open it up was spilling out into the alley people came from other states to come sing along the hamilton it was so cool um and we did that and that happened right as i was beginning production on fiddler on the roof which was the first full production that i got to direct so and how long did how long did swag go on for um swag went on for um until we did fiddler on the roof and then it all imploded and it imploded in a pretty big and bad way how so so i had a business partner and i've actually never really spoken publicly about this so you're getting a bit of an exclusive here um i had a business partner that i was working with and uh we saw i won't go too much into the details but we didn't see eye to eye on i think just the fundamental reason the need for theater i wanted to use theater to to enact social change i wanted to use theater to show people that their stories matter um it's what i do to this day 
uh, in terms of how I use theater and storytelling. And, and I, our relationship soured throughout that production. And by the end of it, uh, she was pretty upset and we got into a pretty big argument and, uh, she, and she told me I was worthless and nothing and that hurt pretty bad. And, and she's like, you know, well, you're out, you're fired. Like you're not a part of this anymore. I put up all the money. So I, so I get to choose. I don't know if that was exactly legal because we did start a 501 C three entity. Um, and I put a lot of work into that. I built the brand up over the course of that year. Uh, yeah, I, I did a lot of, I put a lot of work into trying to make it something special. Um, and we had just done this, you know, I think, for, you know, for a shoestring budget and six months to, for, you know, not even six months, like four months from pre-production to putting it on the stage, doing Fiddler on the Roof. I was pretty proud of what we did um, because I didn't, I didn't know I was going to be directing Fiddler on the Roof until she bought the rights and, and acquired a rental venue while I was on vacation just before I was about to start the job that I'm at now. Um, and it was like August 1st or like end of September or something like that. And it was going to go up in November oh. and I had, I hadn't done any pre-production. Like we had sort of talked about it and she just decided to buy the rights. And um, back, Maui. it was a, it, it was a trial by fire. <laughs> it was like the worst way to have your first production, but maybe in a sense it was the best way because like I dealt with all of these pitfalls right. um, and just kind of made it happen. And um, the show must go on. Right. Yeah. So uh, Yeah. During that whole exchange with this person, um, and you were talking about what kind of theater stories you wanted to tell, mm -hmm. in your head, was the idea of starting your own company in the making? Well, so the, so I had started this company too, right? So like I had started this company, but I started it with her, and I think that we were not explicit enough in our, you know shared agreements in terms of what the, what it was going to be. I had a pretty strong opinion of of what I wanted to do and it it hadn't changed that much between Swag and Echo. That perspective hasn't changed very much. As I as I grew to love storytelling, what kind of evolved through that over the years was realizing that the power of story is that you can like kind of reshape the world around you right like if you have authorial control of your life and your story then you can change the world around you large part of the problems we have now as a country i think is because a lot of people don't have authorial control it's all being held by one perspective a very small group of people mostly the same uh color and gender there's not enough varied lenses right if 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 everybody in control are straight white men, you know, the, the dominant lens of the country is that of a straight white man. And a lot of people are lost in the shuffle. So for me, like the point of telling these stories is to show different groups living their best lives, being actualized, you know, having agency and inspiring people to take that agency in their own life. 
And so that's kind of always been what I wanted to see. So as that happened, right, we, we had this big dramatic blow up uh, at this rehearsal for this uh, thing we were doing called Sing Unite. And it was uh, this just night of healing. It was right after Trump took office. And it was this night of healing where we were going to sing and dance and have a good time and sing protest songs. And she blew up at me during that rehearsal and kicked me out during that rehearsal. And I was in tears. It brought back every insecurity, every trauma came to the surface. And I was in the parking lot of Buona Beef crying and in that parking lot is where I created Echo. Like that, in that moment, I created Echo Theater Collective. Uh, and that was a, you know, that's been a very different experience. So moving forward. So, you know, for me, it's always been like, because my life is, has been kind of constantly marked by significant, like, you know, melodramatic, like soap opera level, like, traumas and, and and crises um for me like another you know superpower i feel i have is you know i'm infinitely resilient and that's just a superpower you'll find you'll find that many black people in america have resilience mm-hmm. you know when you think of living through being ripped away from your homeland forced to build the infrastructure of a country fight for your freedom get freed and then immediately have all the, 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 the rights of what a free man should have take a free person, I should say, uh, taken away from you. And then you have to fight for it all over again, you know, for the right to vote and the right to, you know, eat in the same space as the people that are supposed to be your countrymen, you know, the it's, 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 it's pretty amazing what we've been able to achieve in the face of that. Same thing across all these other marginalized groups between our LGBTQ community, between our Latinx community, our Muslim communities, differently able communities. You have all these people that still have to find ways not just to live, but to thrive, you know? So in that moment, it's like, all right, well, let's just rebuild it and we'll build it even better. What, what with your stories that you perform? for your company. Do you hope audience members or the public take away something or what do you hope audiences take away from your stories or what do you want them to get out of? Um, my hope is that, you know, it depends on the person. My hope uh, for people that are maybe from a, a traditionally marginalized group that they see themselves reflected in the hero. Mm-hmm. Um, for people uh, that aren't from those marginalized groups or, you know, for white people basically um, or people that are upholding white supremacy um, that they see their role in the story, which oftentimes can be that of the antagonist. Um, I think that's a really hard thing for people to do. Um, when I talk about authorial control and realizing your role in the story, that's not always a positive thing. Sometimes it's going to have to be a negative thing. And that's the, that's the even harder part, right? Yeah. I had to come to that realization as a man, how I have harmed women. I had to come to the realization as, as a cisgendered heterosexual, 
that I have harmed uh, people of the LGBTQIA plus community. You know, I've not always been the person that I am today. And I'm not always this person tomorrow. Like I mess up all the time. I harm all the time. Um, but I have to be able to admit that I am making those mistakes if I ever intend to evolve past them. So, you know, and, and sadly, ultimately, uh, I don't really have control over how people interpret the art, but that's my intention. And I have to hope that it has that impact. It does not always, but maybe it does for one person. If even one person, if it has that intended impact, then that's awesome. You know, I don't care if five people come see my play. If one person walks away and, and feels something about themselves, feels better about themselves or realizes that they've been wronging people and start to take active steps to not do that harm, then I've done my job. So. Do these stories have, first of all, this is a two-part question. Um, have your parents seen the work that Echo has done? And then my second part to that question is, do these stories that, that Echo has come up with, has performed, sorry, um, do you choose these stories based on your life or how have you chosen them? So yes, my parents have seen um, the stuff I've done. My, I remember my mom and my grandmother came and saw me do guys and dolls. I should also let your audience know that my mom got better very much. So, and is now one of the leading authorities on um, the fight against sex trafficking in this country um, and has been honored uh, and put into the congressional record by Senator Dick Durbin on the last day of, um, of uh, black history month. in I think 2018. Um, yeah. Like my mom's like a big deal in, in, in in her space right like she's like completely turned her life around and that actually was the impetus for this change in me seeing how she changed her story how she took ownership of her story and then changed it that's the basis for everything that i do um so yes they have seen it my I, my my parents came and saw blues for mr charlie which was a james baldwin play i did and i'll answer your question using that as a as a case study um so with Echo, at first I was just doing smaller productions. You know, um, we did our, our Sing Unite became a Sing series. So that ended up being the last swag thing slash the first Echo thing that I did. And uh, and so we did various Sing uh, events to lift up and celebrate various marginalized communities. We did one for women. We did one for the Latinx community. We did one for the LGBTQ community. Um, but at that point I was like, okay, we really have to do a full stage production. And, uh, I was trying to figure out what to do and I can't even remember which horrible police shooting it was that inspired it at this point. Um, but you know, there's just so many of them. I was like, this is a conversation that we need to start having again, like the way that we used to have it back in the, in the fifties and sixties. Um, so when I was looking for something on that topic, everything I was, I was seeing still excused white people by the end, you know, there was nothing that was just kind of 
an unforgiving, harsh take on what's happening. And then I found that James Baldwin wrote this play called Blues for Mr. Charlie. Now, James Baldwin is, in my opinion, the greatest American writer of all time. Um, he wrote two plays. He wasn't really known for playwriting. He was known for essays on race. He wrote two plays. One was The Amen Corner, and the other one was Blues for Mr. Charlie. Blues for Mr. Charlie was based on loosely on the murder of Emmett Till. And it is set in this small southern town. And this young man uh, has been murdered. And you know who did it. You see who, who did it. But the opening sequence is you hear the shots and you see the man standing over this dead black body. And the first words are, um, and may every inward end up like this inward face down in the mud. Like that's the opening line. It is unflinching, like in every page had the N-word like five, ten times. Like it is full on 50s South written by somebody who lived through it. And so, you know, this guy did it and you're in the entire show is leading up to this courtroom scene. It's a three act, three hour plus drama. Right. So also my board that I put together. We're like, are you crazy? This is what you want to do for our first show? Like a three act drama that has the N word like 500 times in it. Are you serious? I'm like, yep, that's exactly what I want to do. And um, it's, it's, it's super intense. And that N word that's spoken 500 times, a lot of it are, are white people having to say that, mm. say horrible things. So I hire all these wonderful actors and say, I need you to say all these terrible, 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 horrible things. Um, but the thing that drew me to it was that it was real in a way that a lot of things weren't. A lot of the stuff I was finding kind of still excused white people for doing what they were doing and saying, oh, yeah, you're still, you're okay. You're mm -hmm. basically, you know, you're not the bad guy. The system's the bad guy. It's like, yeah, but you're enabling the system. Like, you have to be able to admit you're the bad guy. And this one was saying, like, you are the bad guy. And like the, the character that you would expect to be like the person, the person that you latch on to, that's like the advocate for, you know, trying to be the advocate for the black people and like, you know, m mitigate between the, 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 the aggrieved party and the, and the person that did the thing, you know, this uh, liberal guy named Parnell, you expect him in the third act to like, he knows the truth. He knows that the guy did it because the guy happens to be his best friend and you're waiting for him to on, on the stand say, yeah, he did it. And it gets to the moment and he pussies out. He doesn't say it. Mm. And the guy goes free. Mm. And it's just like, I, I read this play and I'm like, oh my God, this could have been written in 2018 at the time, right? This could have been written in 2018. This is just as relevant today. It, 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 like half of the conversations that are being had are conversations, like the exact conversations happening today, talking about white privilege, 
like I thought that that was a relatively new facet of the conversation, like talking about people's privilege. But, oh, they were having that exact conversation in the in the fifties. That's incredibly sad, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so yeah, so I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was the response? What did people say? It, it was g- generally positive um almost universally positive um a lot of that is performative though right oh yeah yeah, man we need to do something but um what i tried to do with that production was say like okay you've seen the show now how are you going to act to change this so i tried to blend art with action so i had like a pretty robust um tie-in like website to it um, and I didn't, didn't get to do as much because I still have to work a day job, but, um, my hope was to be able to provide free resources and connect people with local organizations that are fighting against systemic racism to give people pathways to activism. Um, there's a group in Oak Park, uh, called race conscious dialogues that does white affinity groups so people can unpack their whiteness. Um, I think it's a pretty revolutionary thing. And it's uh, what's cool about that is it's not relying on the, on, on people of color, uh, especially black people performing their pain for people to understand, you know, I, one thing I hate when people do this is when they say, Oh, like, how is this affecting you? Like, you know, how do you, and I'm like, how do you not know yet? You know, you're seeing it every day. You're seeing all the same stuff. I, I am. Like we both come from the same history. Like you're taught a different history, but like it's all there. If you just look, it's like all there. What you remember when um HBO's Watchmen came out? Have you seen that? I have not, but I know of it. So you can... I'm gonna have to give you like a, a list of things to watch, but <laughs> but the first episode of that um opens on um the Tulsa uh massacre, uh, the Black Wall Street massacre. And I remember the next day after that premiere, thousand articles and people posting those articles like, did did you know this happened in America? And black people are like, yeah. You mean like when the black capital of commerce was bombed (laughs) by white people? Yeah, yeah, we definitely know about that. It's crazy that you don't know about that. (laughs) You know, like that's insane when you think about that, you know. And that's, that's just one of many things. I don't think people realize how bad lynching was in America and like exactly what happened at lynchings. Those weren't private affairs. Those were public affairs. Like a lot of those things that happened like between, uh, between like probably World War II, no, probably a little bit before that, like from the 20s to the 50s maybe a little bit further back or like late 1800s to like the 1950s. Yeah. Um, you know, if a dude, if a black dude looked the wrong way at a white woman, like they get castrated in front of a entire town of people that would pose. There's pictures of people pose like an entire town, hundreds of white people smiling, kids holding blackface dolls in front of a, hung castrated dead black body and that happened within my father's lifetime Mm. within my grandfather's lifetime even more so 
when I think about that, and we somehow thought that we were already in a post-racial society when we, you know, elected Barack Obama, like we did it. It's crazy, you know, and what I've noticed as I wa- as I've consumed art throughout the years that art's always kind of saying these things of, you know, uh, at its best, it is saying all of these things. It is putting it in your face and allowing you to imprint on a protagonist uh, that is being marginalized. Uh, and so my hope was like, okay, so we do that. We show that. And we've, and when you consume it, when you sit down and you watch it, it creates this energy in you. And if left to its own devices, that energy is going to dissipate because there's 8 billion things com- competing for our attention. So if I create a platform where I can not only share the stories, but give you a place to put that energy into so that you can sustain that energy instead of us letting it dissipate because now, okay, I watched that thing. That was awesome. But now there's this other thing that I can watch on Netflix. I can go home and watch, you know, all of Frasier and forget that black people are dying. No, don't do that. Here's how you can help, you know, get them while, while they're caring, get them in that window. You know, so that's kind of the basis for everything that I do now today. Um, we are going to wrap up because we are running out on time, but I have. A- yeah. So I could talk about this stuff forever. So. No, 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 no. <laughs> I think this is really great. Uh, let's get to your announcement uh, before I go into more questions. So you have a podcast platform coming up, right? Yeah. So I started this media company um, that uh, we're announcing um, about a week from when we, f- when we're recording this um, called uh, reflect media. It's kind of the next evolution in what I've been doing. Um, so I have uh, three podcasts that we're going to be launching over the course of three weeks. Uh, the first one is a pop culture podcast to talk about, you know, uh, film, television, theater uh, through an intersectional lens. All of these are through intersectional lenses. Uh, the second one is um, uh, conscious culture. That's uh, uh, about politics and activism. And the third is the Echo Love Journey, and that's a health and wellness podcast. So um, about a year ago, uh, I was diagnosed with congestive heart failure. I was 467 pounds. And that was uh, a direct result of uh, of kind of like a culmination, I should say, of all the trauma that I was kind of holding inside that I wasn't dealing with even as I was like advocating for others I wasn't advocating for myself in that way and uh and then if you listen to that TED talk at the end I uh wrote wrote this letter um I for a very long time was afraid to have kids and while I was working on that I uh came to, to the realization that like the trauma I was holding on to is keeping me from, from being a father. And so I write, write this letter to my unborn child, who I re- refer to as Echo, which is the, also the name of my theater company. It's also the name of the third podcast, which I'll mention in a second. Um, but it's, and that's, people think of that as kind of my brand, like Echo is my brand. Echo is, just kind of my personal like life philosophy. Like we've been talking about story 
right? This whole time and learning your story. My story is not just mine. It's comprised of like millions of stories that come before me. Um, there's been a lot of things passed on to me. At first, I thought that most of that stuff was trauma. But I realized because I didn't have control of my story, all I was seeing was the trauma. And if I have authorial control over my story, that I can find all the other things that were passed on to me, the love, the resilience, all of those other things I talked about. And so I created the, the echo philosophy. So when I was thinking about my unborn child, the child that I was yet to have referred to them as echo. And I write this letter apologizing for delaying our meeting right after that my partner and I got pregnant um but about halfway through the pregnancy we lost the baby and I said you know all this stuff that I've learned throughout the course of my life all of the things I've tried to do and I thought that I figured it out and I thought this was going to be my moment and and then my my reward for that is god taking my baby from me and i just gave up on living and i started eating all of the things i was already probably in heart failure at that point you saw me in that video i was pretty big um but i got really bad and I couldn't walk more than a few feet without feeling like I was going to pass out. And my parents had to have an intervention with me. And I finally went to the doctor and they're like, how have you not had a stroke yet? Go to the hospital right now, please. For the love of God, go to the hospital. Um, you, you know, you shouldn't even be able to walk. And uh, that was a pretty big wake up call. And, and yeah, so everything kind of changed that day. And I realized I have to really take a hard look at my life and figure out how to love myself again. And so the third podcast is called the echo love journey. And so that's going to start off with like a mini series about myself, uh, about my journey and kind of the realization. Um, since then I've lost 200 pounds, 202 pounds. And, uh, thank you. And, um, uh, I feel, and I, I walk 15 K a day. I feel better than I have in probably my entire adult life, you know, and in, a, in order to do that sustainably, I realized I had to constantly assess who I am. I have to constantly do that internal work and that that's not just a one-time thing, but that's an ongoing journey. And so that's about looking at health and wellness as this holistic journey of self. If I need to fix my physical health, it's because I also have to fix my emotional health and my mental health and my spiritual health. And all those things need to be aligned in me. Otherwise, when I have a problem, it's going to affect all those other things worse because I'm not, I'm not balanced. I'm out of balance. It's going to be easier to knock me over. I need a strong foundation so that I can build myself up. And so all, of, all those podcasts will be under the Reflect Media banner. And then the biggest uh, aspect of that is we're working on a television show um, for uh, early childhood uh, development, uh, pu a puppet live action hybrid uh, called Ella, which was what we were going to name our daughter. Her uh, footprints are right there behind me, actually. Mm. Um, uh, when they had to, when, when, so when the miscarriage happened, they were able to 
take her footprints um, for us. So that's all we have of, of her uh, physically, but we hold her in our hearts still. And uh, yeah, and it's just a way for me to still connect with her and tell her, uh, rather give her a platform to tell her story, even though she's not here with us. And so it's a fictionalized four-year-old version of her. And she, we're going to see her grow into her power and we're going to see her learn uh, from the world around her. And we're going to see the world learn from her. So um, yeah, that's the, that's the hope. There's going to be a lot of, um, a lot of announcements coming up uh, in the next few weeks about all of this. So. Can't wait. Uh, Thank you. Question before we do our game. Yeah. About that letter you, you did in your Ted talk. Um, that was recorded over a year ago, almost a year and a half ago, even two years ago, correct? Two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're writing to your child, your, your daughter now. Um, is there anything you would add on to that letter since you've done that? Um, I actually, um, funny that you mentioned it. I wrote a bookend to that, that I performed, um, shortly after I got out of the hospital. Mm. Let me see if I can find it. Actually, I can. So yes, I, there is more to that. Um, so this the so the letter that I wrote to Echo, um, there to Ella now. Um, I'll I'll share that with you real that with you uh, for you real quick. Um, it was uh, dear Echo, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the weight I am obligated to pass on to you. You will be born innocent and limitless in your potential. And my first act as a father will be to traumatize you with the burden of being black in a white world. It is not my intention to do this. I am sorry that you will go through life being marginalized by people that do not see all of you. I'm sorry that you will be ignored by your teachers when you ask to be seen. I'm sorry people will regard your pain as fantasy. And I'm sorry that the world can be so cruel. Mostly though, I am sorry that I let all of those other things keep us from meeting each other. I'm sorry I did not see all the amazing things I would pass on to you. You'll be so strong because of your heritage. You come from grand traditions of queens and slaves who found ways to exist and live and laugh and create while being lynched and raped. You come from a legacy of inventors and doctors and activists who changed the world with love all while being bombed and killed. I'm sorry it took me the better part of 40 years to realize that. I can't wait to meet you. I hope you can forgive me for my foolishness in delaying our meeting. I can't wait to see the person you become. I can't wait to see how you find ways to be free in a world that would shackle you. I can't wait to see what you will leave behind and what kind of echo you will be. With love and, re with love and resistance, Dad. So that's what I wrote to her. Um, but what I realized after I got out of the hospital... Um, is that the reason I'm still alive today is because of the community around me and that echoing love doesn't just come from the past. It's happening all around us. And that we're constantly changing the course of each other's hearts. And just as important as it is to listen to the sounds of my ancestors, it is to listen to the sounds of the here and now, you know, so I reconcile the new trauma with the people around me now all of us in our own way we're echoing love and so i wonder if that was the message that ella had for me right that in her brief time she was still able to impact me in this major way 
you know, even in the slightest moment, one of us can affect change. So that was kind of my reflection on that after I got out of the hospital. Mm. So sorry, sorry about got real like got real serious no man. no no no, no. <laughs> uh, i first of all i love that and second of all i was i was watching i just watched your video twice i did it while i was folding my socks today and then i listened to it again um an hour before we started um and it just hit me even more with that letter um just because i thought it was beautiful and i thought you wrote this over, over back in 2019 and it just felt, you know, I know you did this in 2019. It just felt uh, like 2018, 2018. Sorry. Mm-hmm. It just felt like you were writing it now. And, yeah. and that's why, and I just, you know, I was just reflecting on um, the world we live in right now. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, I, I hope to, I want to help and do my part even more than before. So my my to you thank you for that letter i love that man i love that echo that love baby echo that love um speaking of that love i love this game we're gonna play okay let's do it <laughs> look at that let's do it i'm the master segue here on the show uh because i'm the only person on the show uh, <laughs> um this game is called time for two there are two minutes on the clock it's a series of random icebreaker questions there is no right there is no wrong we are just curious to see what's your opinion <laughs> okay all righty, here we go. In four, three, two, one, go. Is Alex Trebek the greatest game show host of all time? Yes. Um, how do you like your grilled cheese? Um, I do. I make my grilled cheese in the way that um, uh, John Favreau does it in the film Chef. Oh. Uh, so that is uh, three different types of cheeses uh, with a nice uh, consistent heat on a griddle. Um, with a sourdough bread. Mm, coffee or tea? Uh, tea. Gave up coffee. Ooh, TV show you're binging right now? Uh, the West Wing for the 500th time, The Great British Baking Show, and The Amazing Race from Ooh. season one, starting through it. Yeah. <laughs> um, are you a listener or a talker? Uh, I'm a listener, uh, though I can be a talker. Besides this podcast, what podcast do you recommend? Uh, the West Wing Weekly is wonderful. Um, right now, I'm also listening to uh, More Perfect, which was a spinoff of uh, Radio Lab on NPR. It is about the Supreme Court. Oh, very interesting. Um, uh, Uncle Joey or Uncle Jesse? Jesse. Jesse all day. <laughs> Alligators or crocodiles? Crocodile. Can you tell me how to get how to get to Sesame Street? Uh, no, I don't actually know the directions, though <laughs> I do know someone who works on Sesame Street. So, well, there you go. Um, mm-hmm. Is it a beautiful day in a neighborhood? Uh, it's a neighborly day for a beauty wood. Ooh, <laughs> which West Wing character are you? Oh, um, oh boy, um, probably probably Bartlett. Nice. Uh, guys or dolls? Dolls. Audrey the Audrey the character or Audrey two? Uh, Audrey, Audrey the character. Hmm. Uh, CBS or Walgreens? Uh, Walgreens. Last one. Hippies or hipsters? Hippies. 
There we go. That's how we play time for two. <laughs> That's a good game. I like that. I you know, I do that game at parties sometimes just to get just to try it. Like my favorite one is the uh, Turd Ferguson or Burt Reynolds. <laughs> Turd Ferguson. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, see this hat? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> see this hat. Uh, Maui, before we go, my, my last, last question to you is, uh, are your parents proud of you? Uh, yes, I, I believe they are. I believe they are. I believe they are. Maui, again, thank you for asking to be on the show and coming on the show. Um, I'm so appreciative of it. And this was a lot of fun just to learn and listen and just get to know you. It's, it's fun. I'm glad we get to know each other finally. Yeah, man, absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to have you on one of my shows sometime. Well, that was my conversation with Maui Jones. He is a delight and a, a, the definition of an artist. He, know, he uses his words well. Um, he's such a powerful man and a beautiful person inside out. So if you don't follow Echo Theater Collective on Facebook, please do and stay up to date on, their, on Maui's podcast and TV show that he has in the works right now. That's that's great. Yeah. Speaking of great, what's the job uh, like for you, Griffin? Um, well, I have so many, including um, whatever jobs I said I did on the last episode. Oh, boy. Uh, I've already forgotten. Uh, but I'll tell you now, I, I, I have gotten a new one. I am now the, the official Pokemon trainer. Wow. Of, are your parents proud of you? Wow. We are just finding a whole new audience every episode because of you Griffin. Yep. Well, you know, you got to I recently found out that Pokemon was the highest grossing media franchise in the world. Really? So, got to tap into that market. Yeah. Got to catch them all, right? Yes, got to catch them all. Speaking of uh, them all, <laughs> where can they all find us? <laughs> you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram at Parents Proud Podcast. Email us. Yes, we're going to promote that email. Oh, you better believe we're going to promote that email. I will never stop promoting our email, parentsproudpodcast at gmail.com. Give us, send us all of the emails. We cherish everyone. Oh, my God. Folks, next week we are going to have an uh, actor, writer, singer, songwriter, artist all around, Taylor Janae on the show Stay tuned for that. I can't wait. Right, Griffin? I cannot wait as well. I'm looking forward to it. Until next time, everybody, uh, that's Matthew Schufreiter. I'm Griffin McCorkle, and we're, we're signing off. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Go vote. Yes, do that, too. Go vote. Goodbye. Goodbye.